Well, it is a great delight to be with all of you. What an encouraging time of worship with you. My great thanks to Dr. Johnson and to the session here for the kind invitation and the hospitality already uh, of being with you. I greet you in the name of Jesus Christ, and I bring you greetings from Westminster Presbyterian Church in Atlanta. We have read the text for this evening, uh, but I would ask that you would join me in prayer as we ask for the Lord's help as we consider it together. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank You for the written Word. We thank You that as it is inspired by the Spirit, it is useful for teaching and rebuke and correction and training in righteousness that the preacher, the man of God, and also every believer might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Our Father, we pray that as we consider Your Word together, we would grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Your church would become ever more a reflection of Your glory and Your beauty, that we would be built together into the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Earlier this summer, my family and I had the opportunity to to drive from Atlanta to one of my favorite places, uh, to a little town called Montreat, North Carolina. Uh, Montreat is not far from Asheville. For about a century, Montreat has been a gathering place for Presbyterians. Uh, It's now associated with the mainline denomination, uh, though we can say that uh, uh, biblical Christian flames are still burning there. On this particular trip, Uh, This summer, my family drove southwest to the Blue Ridge Parkway, and we stopped at the Pisgah Inn in Canton, North Carolina. And at the Pisgah Inn, maybe you've been there, there is an observation deck with a spectacular view of the mountains. You may remember that from the biblical Mount Pisgah, the Lord showed Moses all of the promised land from north to south. And I can say that at an elevation of about 5,000 feet from that observation deck in Canton, you feel like you can see all of North Carolina into South Carolina and southwest into Georgia. Row after row of gorgeous mountain ranges spreads before you into the distance. When we were there, we saw a storm coming over the parkway to the west. We saw clouds rising from the distant mountains, each of which seemed to be a new shade of blue that you could almost reach out and touch. And I think that that is about as close as we can come in terms of a physical and geographical picture to the kind of supernatural revelation that God gave His Old Testament prophets. Prophets who came after Moses, prophets like Ezekiel. Of course, God didn't bring the prophets up to Mount Pisgah as He did Moses to survey the promised land, but God did give His prophets something even better. He gave them insight into the very promises of God themselves. Promises that stretched out into the far future. Even into the glorious ages to come. Even into the age of Christ. We need to remember that God sent His prophets into Israel long after He had delivered His people from bondage in Egypt and brought them into the promised land. He forged them into a holy nation. He placed them under an earthly king. Israel was to be 
a, a, a holy theocracy, a place where God had specially put his name. They were to be a kind of a kingdom to God, a projection of heaven on earth. And at the same time, Israel was to be a kind of anticipation of the new and glorious and permanent kingdom that was going to come through God's own Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the prophets were the guardians of this theocracy, this kingdom preview. They were the watchmen of the covenant that God had made with Israel. And again and again, tragically, the prophets watched as Israel descended into gross idolatry and forgot God and and forgot all of His commands, and and as a result, God delivered upon them many temporal judgments and discipline. The prophets called the nation back to faith, back to repentance, back to new obedience. And for this, they were mocked, and they were slandered, and they were even killed. And because of Israel's faithlessness and disobedience, because of their sins and their treatment of God's prophets, God eventually delivered His people into exile far away from the promised land. and Their their geographical removal was a kind of geographical sign of their spiritual distance from God Himself. And it was in that context of exile that through Ezekiel, God reminded His people that He was still their God. That His purposes for them would not be thwarted. That He would deliver them into a new and eternal kingdom wrought by the Lord Jesus Christ, and He would do it suddenly. And this helps explain that when we read our Bibles in the Old Testament, we can be neck deep in dark declarations of of divine judgment, and then it seems that with a flick of the inspired wrist, the prophet can suddenly soar into declarations of promises of all the new things that God is going to do. New things that He says He's going to do on the far side of His judgment against Israel. And indeed, ultimately, on the far side of the judgment that He will bring upon the whole world. So the prophets looked out over those mountain ranges of God's saving purposes. And Peter tells us that by the Spirit of Christ in them, they were enabled by the Holy Spirit to speak about the coming of Jesus Christ and all of the new things that Jesus would bring. This is why I'm very pleased to explore with you during our time this weekend, ultimately leading into the Lord's Day worship, the newness that Christ brings. The newness that Christ brings. I want us to step back as those believers who live on this side of the cross and on this side of Pentecost. What has Christ done in history? What are the new things that He has ushered into human history, even into the church, into our own hearts, according to God's saving plan? What What difference does it make in our lives? Indeed, we can ask ourselves, does it make a difference? In Isaiah 43, God says to Israel, Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? And this is a question we can ask ourselves today. Do we perceive the new things that God has done in Jesus Christ? Have these new things taken hold of us in our own hearts, in our own homes, in our own marriages, in our own churches? Well, the new things are often set over against the old things of the Old Testament, the old things being God's work of creation and especially His work of delivering Israel from bondage in Egypt and then again from Babylon, of His covenant with Israel at Sinai in the land, ultimately. And Scripture again and again reaches for metaphors to describe 
what the new things are going to be like when they surpass the old. The Bible says the new things will be like a river, clear and pure, rushing into a a barren wilderness. They will be like a shining light piercing the dead of night as, as people from all nations stream to the light. It will be like entering into a marriage to God, secure and faithful forever. The new things will be like a song bursting forth because it can't be restrained because the God who does these new things is that great. The new things will be like a feast prepared at the right time with all of God's family gathered and at peace. The new things will be like resting in shade on a sweltering day. The new things will be like heaven come down to earth. In fact, the more we read our Bibles, the more we read it won't just be like these things, it will actually be these things. It will be a feast prepared. It will be light shining. It will be true rest, ultimately. It really will be heaven on earth through Jesus Christ. So tonight, let's look just at one dimension of the newness that Christ brings through His person and work as recorded in the book of Ezekiel. We're going to focus especially on verse 26 where God says, I will give you a new heart. A new heart. The text says more than this. In fact, I'm going to list three things that God says He will do for His people, but we'll be focusing primarily on verse 26. The first thing that God says in this text that He will do is is gather His people back into the land that He has promised them. This is the promise that brackets our text. It, It appears in verse 24, And then again at the beginning of verse 28, this gathering back into the land. Let's look at verse 24. God says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Now you may know Ezekiel is ministering in the 6th century during the southern kingdom of Judah's exile in Babylon. And after 70 years, this particular promise was at one level fulfilled. As God used King Cyrus of Persia to to free Israel from bondage and bring them back into the promised land around 539 B.C. But the Bible, of course, uses this historical return and and gathering as a springboard, indeed as an anticipation of a new and greater ingathering of God's people. In fact, it's possible that the text even hints at this greater ingathering when it says that God will gather His people from all of the countries of the earth. Well, what is this, this new and greater gathering of God's people from all the earth? It's the gathering of the people of God through the gospel preached to Jesus Christ through faith. It's the gathering of believers throughout all the world, not only from Israel, but from far-off Gentile lands. It's the sweeping harvest of the redeemed church from all the nations of the earth. As Paul writes in Ephesians 2, to, to non-Jews in particular... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near through the blood of Christ. When you believe upon Christ, when you are united to Him through faith, you are, as it were, snatched out of the world, made a citizen of heaven, brought near to God when you first believe. And then then the Bible says that there is a yet greater day, another gathering to Christ. The gathering through faith will be followed by a very physical and permanent gathering from all over the world of believers in heaven and on earth 
to the Lord Jesus Christ at his visible return. Jesus Christ will one day assemble his whole church, the elect from every age, from every tribe and tongue and nation, and he will present the church to his Father in great glory. We will be gathered together, not not in the promised land of Israel, but in the better country of heaven. As heaven itself descends and envelops this world to make it a fitting arena for the for the worship of God forever. And in the meantime, uh, Scripture tells us that God is pleased to call His people together in little groups, to gather visibly in churches around the world to worship Him. Hebrews 10. Let us not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is part of the logic of gathering together for worship. We gather as, as visible expressions of the kingdom that Christ has inaugurated. We, we worship as thousands upon thousands of little anticipations of the great gathering on the last day. Well, if we're going to be physically gathered together to the Lord of glory, we're going to need the second thing that God promises through the prophet Ezekiel. He promises, secondly, that he will not only gather his people, but cleanse his people. This is what he says in verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Of course, the mention of clean water and uncleannesses harks back to the ritual language of Old Testament law. All of the Jews were to obey ritual purity laws according to life in the theocracy. There's a reason that the high priest had to wash his hands outside the temple in a basin of 12,000 gallons of water before entering to perform his temple service. And the reason is that the, the ritual purity laws spoke to Israel's need, indeed the whole world's need, for spiritual cleanliness before God. God is holy. God is awesome in purity. And he, he requires that for his people to know true fellowship with him, that they be in a status and a condition befitting his presence. And so here in verse 25, God tells Israel that he is going to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. He he is going to cleanse them inwardly, deeply, lastingly. He's going to cleanse them from, from sin and from slavery to sin so that he might present them to himself in splendor without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing so that they might know him in true fellowship, with true love, in true life. And this leads us to the third, indeed the central thing that God promises to do for Israel. He's going to gather them. He's going to cleanse them. And he says that he's going to give to Israel and indeed to all of his chosen people a new heart. A new heart. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now you know that in the Bible, the heart is the governing center of of who we are. It's the centerpiece not only of our desiring, it's the centerpiece of our thinking and our willing. Uh, Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The psalmist says, teach me wisdom in the secret heart. The Proverbs say, above all, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And the problem is, according to Jeremiah, that the heart is what is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. We cannot know the bottom 
of the darkness of our hearts. I imagine many of you here are not only parents, but perhaps grandparents. If you're like me, with your children, with your grandchildren, if you want anything, you want your children, your grandchildren to know the Lord. You want them to know the Lord from the heart. You want them to be, to be a, a boy or a girl, a man and a woman after God's own heart. Uh, last week at, in Atlanta, we went up on a high school retreat uh, in North Georgia mountains. I have, I have the chigger bites to prove it. And, and looking at those high schoolers, I wanted to get into their heart, as parents do, uh, want to do with their children, to get, to get into their heart, to change their heart. But we can't do that, can we? But God, as a faithful and loving Father, can do that. He can enter into the heart. He can, he can take away an unfeeling and insensitive heart, indeed a, a lifeless heart, a heart of stone, as Ezekiel says, and He can make it sensitive. He can make it alive to, to Him. And this is what He says He will do in verse 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. This is what theologians call regeneration, the new birth. It's the beginning of the Christian life. It's the very first effect of, of Christ laying hold of you and you being joined to Him. And Jesus says that this new heart is, is absolutely indispensable for anyone to behold the glory of His kingdom. Isn't this what He told Nicodemus, the Pharisee? If ever, if ever there was a man who, who believed that external obedience to the law of God was what was secure his place in the kingdom of God, it was Nicodemus. And he comes to Jesus at, at night, uh, perhaps ashamed that he's coming to ask this question of the rabbi. And in essence, he asks Jesus, what must I do to see the kingdom of God? And Jesus tells Nicodemus that he can't do anything, but something must be done to him. In John 3, verse 3, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, literally born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What does this mean exactly, to be born again, to be born from above, for God to give you a new heart? Well, in a word, it means for God to work a sudden recreation beneath the operation of your working consciousness. It means for God to, to empower you with heavenly life to impart to you a radical and absolutely new beginning of a spiritual nature. A nature and a heart that, that begets faith, that lays hold on Christ, that begets repentance and a freely willed obedience to the Word of God and a love for the Word of God more and more. And God does this internal work by the power, as Calvin put it, the secret energy of the Holy Spirit. And this is how God says He will do it in verse 27. He says, I will put My Spirit within you. That is the way that God implants a new heart in the heart of dead sinners. And I will cause you to walk in My statutes and be careful to obey My rules. There's the evidence of the new heart, isn't it? There's the way and the evidence of the new heart. Brothers and sisters, I, I wonder if we have reckoned with our desperate need for God to do this sovereign work in our hearts if we are to behold the glory of Christ in His kingdom. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I wonder if, if you and I have reckoned with the reality of the new heart that God has given you 
despite what you may be feeling day to day? What has God done in you? If ever there was a doctrine that shouted the sheer sovereignty and grace of God in salvation, it is the doctrine of regeneration, isn't it? Only God can remove a heart of stone, insensitive to God, hostile to God, as Paul says in Romans 8, incapable of any inclination toward God, and only God can implant a new living principle of life toward Him. That is the language that's used here, the language of implanting. I don't want to distract you from the text before us, especially this early in the weekend, but but I can tell you from a personal standpoint that I have known the physical helplessness of needing a new organ. Uh, Thankfully, not a new heart, uh, but a new kidney. Back in 2006, uh, actually, my my wife and I were in Israel. Uh, It was a a graduation gift from seminary from my parents. We were in Tel Aviv, and and we went straight to the hospital. And uh, I still remember it. Uh, A nurse, she had red hair, told me through through broken English and her Hebrew that I had end-stage kidney failure and that I would need a new kidney in order to live. And it was a shock to us all. Uh, But the symptoms were there. Uh, Languid, headaches, feeling sick, looking sick, had been coming for 10 years, and I didn't know it until the words were spoken to me that I would need a kidney transplant. And, And 17 years ago this week, uh, my father jockeyed for a position and uh, elbowed my brothers out of the way uh, to, by the grace of God, and, and he gave me life for a second time. And this is a spiritual picture, isn't it? It's a spiritual picture of what everybody needs who is living right now outside of Jesus Christ. Non-Christians are living life with the, the poison of sin coursing through their veins, with the curse of death. All the symptoms are there. Disaffection with God, alienation from Him, a total absorption with the things of of this world. And the only solution is that that God must intervene. And Ezekiel says this is exactly what God does. He intervenes into that condition of spiritual hostility and deadness to make sinners come alive to Him. Now this weekend we are talking about the newness that Christ brings and and we have to admit that the name Jesus is not found in Ezekiel 36. So, so how can we say that this is part of the newness that Jesus brings? Well, let me just read as we head to a finish here from 1 Peter chapter 1. Familiar words. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, friends, it is Jesus' resurrection from the dead that secures and enables every new heart that God implants in a sinner. All the way from the Old Testament into the New, it is the power of the resurrected Christ who begets the new heart in the sinner and sustains it all the way through the kingdom that He is bringing. It is Jesus Christ, risen in imperishable glory, who is the power of the new heart that God gives. 
It is His very life that comes into you as you believe the Gospel preached. As the Holy Spirit takes the Word of truth, the Word of the Gospel, it is the Holy Spirit sent from the risen Christ who penetrates the dead heart and grants eternal life to the dead sinner. To raise him, to raise her spiritually from the dead. This ought to give us enormous encouragement because it means that if God has regenerated you, you are forever alive to God in union with Jesus Christ. Regardless of your fight against indwelling sin, even in the fight against indwelling sin, there is no chance that you could calcify again into a stony heart. No more chance that that could happen than that Jesus could be stripped from heaven and put back in the tomb. For nothing less than the life of the Son of God sustains your regenerated heart and leads you ever closer to the great ingathering of the people of God on the last day. And we could ask ourselves if this is the case, why do we so often fail to feel alive to God? Why does it so often feel as though we are not alive to God and dead to sin, but alive to sin and dead to God? Well, we can explore much of this together this weekend, but perhaps we can say one thing, going back to our opening illustration. As Ezekiel looked out over the mountain ranges of God's purposes into the far-off future, we can say that we have the great privilege of living among those mountain ranges. We live on this side of the cross, on this side of Pentecost. And yet today we live in the midst of a valley. And we have not yet come to the final peak. And so we fight against indwelling sin. We are forever risen with Christ in the heart. We are forever alive to God in Him through the Spirit's regenerating work, but we live in the valley. We're alive to heaven, but not yet home in heaven. Not yet fully freed from sin's presence. Regenerated. Being sanctified, not yet glorified. But to us, again and again, God, God asks us, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? Brothers and sisters, as we explore these facets of the new and eternal kingdom that Christ brings, of the implications of belonging to this kingdom together, may the Lord give us eyes to see and ever-renewed hearts to behold the new things that the Lord has brought and is bringing through Jesus Christ, that we might be glad in Him today. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, our hearts would be warmed, that we would know that we are alive to You in Jesus Christ, that the dominion of sin has been broken, and that we are being renewed day by day, perhaps even as our outer man wastes away. Lord, we pray that You would fix our eyes upon the risen Christ, that we would know that we have an unbreakable bond of fellowship with Him, that we might commune with Him and give ourselves to Him and delight in His new and eternal kingdom. We pray this in His name. Amen.